the epicenter of the Buddhist psychology is not the Eightfold Path or the Four Noble Truths, which you probably at some point or another heard of. The absolute foundation of the Buddha's insights and the human mind and what causes suffering was called the Paticca Samuppada. You don't have to memorize that. It's in a long dead language called Pali. But uh, that means essentially, I mean, to translate it literally would be Paticca means dependent and Samuppada means the arising of experience. So it literally means that mental experiences arise in a certain sequence. Mental events happen in a very strict causal sequence. That's essentially what it purports. And for the purposes of tonight, I'm going to draw attention to one of the most surprising uh, suppositions or uh, foundations of this, this insight, which is that thoughts, emotions, and behavior are all preceded by our gut feelings. And what that means is that our gut feelings are far more influential over how we act than how we think or any external circumstances. We are beings that are driven by our feelings. We act in accordance with how we feel, not how we think. Now this is a very, very important observation and the implications are wide-ranging. I'm going to talk first a little bit about just introducing you to this observation and what the Buddha claims, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit in terms of what it means in terms of our own lives and how it could help us reduce stress, needless stress in our lives, and also open up our lives to embrace risks and challenges that we avoid out of fear. So, the Buddha's claim is first that certain experiences, settings, people, places, things, certain experiences activate very strong feelings. In the early language, these feelings had a wonderful word. They were called Vedana. And Vedana literally means nonverbal, essentially, states of comfort and discomfort or no change or no feeling whatsoever. So there's only three kinds of feelings in the Buddha's uh, theory. There's feelings of comfort, discomfort, and neutral feelings. So when we stumble upon something that activates feelings, the reason why certain experiences do that is because of what the Buddha called Nama Rupa, which is early life experiences create what you could call landmines or triggers for us. For example, uh, obvious, uh, we could say that uh, if somebody in early life had a scary situation with water, if they were suddenly pushed into a pool, they would not be comfortable with that at all. It would activate that uh, association that water is dangerous and they would have very often an experience of panic, which would be a negative feeling, which would then 
become quickly overwhelming. Generally, the examples are a little bit more subtle and relational. For example, if you grew up in a family where one parent suddenly abandoned the family, left the family, um, so suddenly you were without a parent, then in your adult life, in relationships, when a partner started to express any interest of expanding, changing, moving, traveling on their own, anything that suggested uh, a lack of commitment, then you might very well feel a strong feeling of insecurity, threat, discomfort. If, uh, in the other hand, you grew up with a parent that was emotionally overwhelming, engulfing, smothering, uh, controlling, then if you were in a relationship and your partner expressed anything that would suggest strong emotions, seeking greater connection, and so forth, then you might feel negative emotions associated with needing to get away, needing to gain distance. So early life experiences create landmines that in adult life, new experiences can trigger. Comfortable feelings make us want to stay, make us want to relax, make us want to maintain whatever's going on. So if, for an example from my life, one of the few times in my family system I ever felt comfortable was at museums and art galleries. That was the one time my parents seemed to be most comfortable, most relaxed, and there was a, a very supportive environment. So today, as an adult, when I go to galleries and museums and uh, I see art, I feel this physical underlying sense of ease. And that underlying sense of ease makes me relaxed, it makes me comfortable, it makes me want to stay. I feel very at home. On the other hand, when I was very young, I had a severe uh, bike accident. I lost a number of teeth, and the dentist I went to was not very compassionate to me. And so even to this day, when I have to even just setting foot in the dentist's office, I get really physically uncomfortable. In fact, I get really uncomfortable whenever I go to Duane Reed's or CVR's or any of those because the lighting reminds me of times in my life when I was sick and uncomfortable. So now as an adult, when I go to these places, I feel sick and uncomfortable. I hate going to big sort of hotel chains because uh, they remind me of visiting my Russian grandmother who lived in one of the assisted living facilities with the fluorescent lights and the industrial carpeting. So I set foot and I start to feel negative, very strong feelings making me want to get the fuck out. <laughs> then there's neutral feelings of, that make us disinterested, bored, tell us that there's nothing going on and we should essentially no longer pay attention and it gives us permission to daydream. So for me, anything that's... Uh, my parents used to occasionally drag me as a kid to these large social gatherings due to their work. And I always used to find it excruciating being with adults. So today, 
whenever I go to anybody's wedding, the first thing that I feel is this overwhelming numbness and boredom come over me. And I immediately just start drifting away and, you know, feeling like I, you know, just no, no sense of interest whatsoever. So those are the three very pronounced kinds of feelings. We have uncomfortable feelings which make us want to get away, end the situation, remove ourselves, push something away that make us want to fight, flee, or change the experience. We have comfortable feelings that make us want to relax, bond, connect, and so forth. So if uh, the, we don't inter, intervene at this stage, and this is a very crucial juncture, before the next stage arises, when we're just at strong feelings, there's this opportunity which we'll talk about a little later, to stop the process that unfolds in the aftermath. But if we don't stop the process, what will happen is these feelings will turn into impulses to change, to get away, to... The feelings will become no longer just uncomfortable feelings, but they'll urge us to take action. They'll urge us to bond if we're comfortable, to express joy, to seek intimacy. Or if we're uncomfortable, it, the impulses will be to retreat, to defend, to attack, to shut down, to do something that pulls us and disconnects us. What I'm saying here is that the impulses that grow out of feelings create what is known commonly as emotions. Emotions are visible to other people and they are essentially calls to action for us. Feelings which arrive before emotions are not visible to anyone else. You can't tell how I feel. You can tell what my emotional state is. So my feelings are internal. Only I, if I'm very attuned to them, even know what they are. Most people aren't even aware of their feelings. Their feelings unconsciously drive them. So it's very possible to spend our, much of our lives being influenced by feelings we're not even aware of because they're internal and we tend to focus on external things in our lives. So to, re to recap, Experiences lead to strong feelings. Strong feelings lead to emotions which are calls to take action and which are, you know, very strong impulses to either connect, bond, seek intimacy, or to retreat, attack, defend ourselves, and shut down. Finally, once emotions are present, the last part of this cycle before suffering <laughs> is... Thought. Thought is the last stage in this arising. Thought centers are the slow circuits of the brain. In fact, feelings are the fastest circuit, followed by emotions, which are all right hemispheric. Thought is left hemispheric. It requires language centers. It requires cognitive processing. Generally, feelings arise in about one-tenth of a second, Thought arises in about a half a second, so it's actually four times slower than feelings. This, by the way, while it was all stated by the Buddha some 2,500 years ago, has been known in the West some 130 years 
It was first proposed by the great William James in the James-Lang theory. And William James noticed that when people are startled, before they know they're startled, before they even emotionally have a reaction, they jump and they have a strong feeling of shock that then gives into an emotion of fear that then turns into a thought. And so language centers do something very interesting. We have this strong feeling that turns into an impulse to take action, and then thought comes around and it creates what the Buddha called views and opinions, ditties in his language, that justify our impulses rather than tell us to stop and think it over. So instead of playing devil's advocate, the mind generally is just along with the ride and telling us to act out our impulses and why we should go along with whatever our gut feelings and impulses are telling us to do. It's only in rare circumstances that we override our impulses. And that is the last capability that happens in human life. In fact, the axons that allow the left frontal lobe to override bad ideas is only really fully wired by the age 25. They're the last to appear. Interestingly enough, thought, besides generally going along with the, tra with the impulse train, thought deflects our attention away from the fact that the impulses were authored in feelings and focuses our attention on the person or the place or the thing, and it blames everything on the external circumstances and deflects our attention from how we feel. So let's use a famous example by... Uh, a, most, a most obvious example, if you were in a car crash when you were young, and God forbid you were listening to Steely Dan. I don't know why you'd be doing that. I thought you had better taste, but you didn't. Perhaps your parents were selecting the music. No, they're all right. I don't, I don't care about them. <laughs> it could have been Billy Joel. You're listening to Billy Joel, and... Uh, and then there's a car crash. In the future, you're in a restaurant. You start to heal, hear, the, uh, you might be right. I might be crazy. You wanted to hear a um, strange Buddhist teacher sing Billy Joel songs, right? Uh, anyway, you hear that song in the background. You'll start to feel uncomfortable. But instead of understanding that it's the song, or the feeling that's making you want to leave, you'll blame it on your date. Ah, uh, I don't know, there was just something about them, the, the, the way they talked. I don't know, I decided the sudden feeling of nausea and I had to get away. It was clearly not the person for me. <laughs> so thoughts deflect our attention away from the true cause of many of our behaviors and blame it on the person or the situation or the setting. The good news is that sometimes this fast feelings, giving birth to impulses, are to our benefit. Certainly, for much of human history, it was worthwhile that our behaviors are driven by the fast circuits of the right hemisphere, which are based on feelings, not thinking. If, for example, in much of human history, you were out gathering, uh, I don't know, firewood, for your tribe, and you were alone, and then a group of other people from another tribe 
came along and they were ha they were holding weapons, you had a split second to decide whether to run or whether to figure out if they were friendly. And you would have to trust your gut. If you waited to have enough logical foundation for your thinking to uh, figure out what to do, you'd probably be dead. Very often, uh, the fast circuits of the brain, as Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning uh, psychologist, showed in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, very often it's to our advantage that what's these impulses, which we commonly know as intuition, are very often right. He did a famous study um, where he gave 360 financial novices, he asked them to pick stocks out of intuition. And that portfolio outperformed over 70% of the existent portfolios on the market. Because he found that people generally who try to logically pick portfolios are using the slowest parts of the brain and make stupid mistakes. Interestingly enough, the great Damasio, Antonio Damasio, one of the world's most famous neuroscientists, showed that professional card players unconsciously know when to hold or when to fold well, intuitively, well before they consciously count X or figure it out. He attached skin sensors and found that in half the time it takes a card player to figure out whether it's more likely to be a, uh, a what do they call the cards which are, have faces on them, face cards, I don't know what the hell they're called. Anyway, we figure it out unconsciously far before we figure it out consciously. Damasio also goes on to say that the brain is the body's captive audience. Feelings are the winners amongst equals. Our decision-making is shaped by these somatic states. He calls feelings somatic states. So impulses can lead, on the other hand, though, as well as to smart decisions, they can lead to very, very dumb ones. Probably the reason why so many uh, people are shot by policemen for absolutely no reason is because of cultural biases that have been be deeply instilled and lead to snap judgments where police officers follow their instinct and their instincts are very poor rather than think and then make, a, make an informed decision. Very often in life, if we grew up, as I said in the first example, if we grew up in a family where one parent suddenly abandoned the family, we will, interestingly enough, of course, assume that every little hint or suggestion of needing space or distance is a signal of abandonment. And unfortunately, very often, people who grow up in those family systems are often attracted to people who are intimacy-averse as well. So the core message is that feelings plus impulses plus then obsessive thoughts that justify those impulses are very strong. They're very difficult to override. 
And in fact, the impulses that quickly get rid of the feelings that are stressful and painful become what are known as compulsions. People will drink, text, food, shoot drugs, take alcohol, text compulsively, check their Facebook, their ex's Facebook page, and do all kinds of compulsive behaviors, not because it brings them any joy, but because for a very short time it alleviates the physical stress and points their attention externally so that they don't have to feel the loneliness. Picture the person who comes home and feels lonely, and that is first felt as this hollowness in the chest and this tightness in the stomach, a negative feeling, which then gives the impulse to alleviate the loneliness. And so they eat, because at some point in their life, their life they associated being fed with being connected and being cared for by other people. So compulsions are essentially impulses that for a very short time alleviate feelings that are uncomfortable. So I'll read you a quote by the great Bessel van der Kolk, who's one of uh, the most important psychologists of our time. Uh, he says, people take drugs, cut themselves, starve themselves, have sex with strangers to make difficult gut feelings disappear. Once you have those horrible sensations in your body, you will do anything to make those feelings go away. This is Bessel van der Kolk, the great trauma therapist. And uh, So the key then is to be able to stop this process. And in the Abhidhamma, which is the commentaries in the Buddhist teachings, they make a very clear recommendation, which is that there's a weak link in this chain. When we get to the point where the feelings have ar arisen, before the full impulses to act, to get rid of them, to change, to defend, to shut down, to get away, to cling, to whatever it is the impulses tell us, there's this opportunity to stick with the feelings, hold the feelings, create a safe container for the feelings, and develop processes that will slowly alleviate the feelings before they turn into compulsions that keep us trapped in, trapped in addictive spirals. The teaching is very clear, and this has been borne out by dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and so many other trauma therapists, which is that the, if we want to interrupt the cycles of, of compulsion and addiction in our lives, we can't wait until we're struggling with the thought, because by that point it's far too late. We've already got the stress in the body, the impulse to act, and then we've got even the thinking, I've got to get out of here, I'm in danger, I'm not going to be able to survive, I'm not going to be able to get out of the subway, we're going to be stuck. So by that point we have the thinking, the impulse, and the feeling. If on the other hand we can stop, or at least by the time we get into that stressful state, go back to the feelings, 
focus on the feelings alone and work with those feelings rather than fight the thoughts and fight the impulses. If we can bring it back to the core feelings in the body, that's our chance to interrupt all of our compulsive compulsions, our avoidance coping, our tendencies to uh, be driven by habits. So, a famous example of this is, I love this example, I use it all the time, many of you will have heard me, who've been here before, will have heard me use this example, but uh, the monk Sumedho was the practitioner who was struggling with an addiction to donuts. And her strategy was to avoid the donut store. And Sumedho said, well, all you're doing is cre- keeping the whole cycle in place because sooner or later you're going to see a donut or you'll see something else that you'll want to eat to fill yourself up and make you, make you get rid of the... She did it because she hated her job and she wanted something to make her feel fulfilled and her, her job felt very empty. So Sumedho said rather than avoid the things that cause stress, what we should do is allow ourselves to be exposed to whatever it is that triggers us, but instead of staring at the donut, bring our attention to the feelings and learn how to hold and slowly alleviate those feelings. And then he said, over time, you'll be able to essentially see donuts, and slowly, if you practice this, you won't need to eat them. So it would look like, for example spending one minute feeling the feelings before grabbing the donut, then the next day two minutes, then three minutes. And this is very well known in exposure therapy, a, key, a cornerstone or a keystone of cognitive behavioral therapy. There are, however, in the Buddha's teachings, uh, a very clear sequence of what he recommended to do to interrupt the compulsive cycle. The first is to uh, distract our attention from whatever is triggering us. So, distracting one's attention can be done in a number of different ways. There was a famous study called the Marshmallow Test. I love this, done with six-year-olds, Walter Michelle, who who did this wonderful test with five-year-olds. You put a, a marshmallow... And then you say, I'm going to leave the room, and in five mil- minutes when I come back, if there's that marshmallow still there, you're going to get a second one. So it's very much in the five-year-old's interest to not do it. And, of course, this test showed that, was able to predict which kids would do well in school and which kids wouldn't. It was an amazing test. They found the kids that uh, override the, the, the desire to eat the marshmallows, they weren't actually greater or stronger in their impulse control, these were simply kids that learned a trick. They would focus away. (laughs) They'd look somewhere else in the room. They'd look at a game. They'd look at a toy. They would look anywhere else but the marshmallow. So very much at the core of impulse control is learning to distract your attention. Years later, Dan Wegner with the famous white bears test where he asked people to not think about white bears, the only strategy that would work, because when you tell somebody to not think about white bears, guess what? 
they will think about it twice as often if you, than if you say you can think about white bears as much as you want. So trying to fight thoughts and impulses doesn't work. But then Wegner did a second study and he said you can think about red Volkswagens if you want. And those people never thought about white bears. So if you give yourself a safe distraction, then you can begin the process of overriding a compulsion. So the Buddha recommended sensory clarity, which means orient yourself to what's going on. Pull your attention away from the trigger. You're at a party. You see your ex there. You suddenly start to feel everything in your body begin to get tense. Instead of trying to not think about them, focus your attention on the exit signs. Focus your attention on the sights and the sounds. Orient yourself, feel your feet standing on the ground. Fill your mind up with as many distracting sensations as possible so that you're not focusing on the trigger, but you're also not being totally swamped by the strong feelings which are creating the impulse. It's very important to develop this strategy or B, if it's really strong, then you can use what's called titrating strategies. The Buddha recommended, he didn't call them titrating strategies, that's a more contemporary term, but you can also override triggers by visualizing places in your life where you felt safe and relaxed. So when you're triggered by something, instead of trying to fight it or, or work it out or figure it out, just simply allow, say yes, you're there, but then visualize some place that in the past you felt really safe and relaxed. This strategy, by the way, of saying yes, I see you, I know you're there, is very important. If you simply try to detach and distract yourself without acknowledging the trigger and accepting that the trigger's there, you'll uh, invariably come back because you haven't accepted the presence of the trigger. So if you're in a situation, a family gathering, a situation with a roommate who drives you crazy, uh, where you're with someone who in the past you had a very painful experience, if you try to, one, figure a way to get away or argue with yourself that you shouldn't be activated, neither of those strategies will work. But if you simply zing them with yes, that person's here, it gets rid of the tendency to need to follow the impulse and resist their presence. Many, many years ago, we were on a spiritual gathering down in this island, and there I, there I was surrounded by, unfortunately, the other, many of the other spiritual practitioners I was surrounded with were not Buddhists, but they were born-again Christians. Hooray! These were some of the most difficult people I've ever been with in my life. And for the first few days, they were everywhere. They'd wake up insidiously early in the morning, because I think that's what they do. They'd grab up every place around the pool. They would be loud throughout. They'd push their way in lines. This is, yes, a rant against born-again Christians. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm sure there are many, many wonderful. But anyway... For the first day, I was absolutely miserable. Here I was, a Buddhist, on a spiritual re retreat with born-again Christians. 
And then I realized a simpler thing to do was simply to shoot them with yes. Yes, you're there. Yes, you too. Oh God, yes, you're here as well. But each time I would just think yes, it would remove the resistance, remove the impulse to get away or scream or insult or do something or follow the impulse. And it would relax the impulse so I could work on the underlying feelings. And finally, when you do bring your awareness to the gut feelings, it's important to, before you address the core feelings, the core somatic, the Vedana, to relax everything around it. So if you are in a, uh, a situation where you are being criticized and that brings up early childhood memories of being unfairly criticized, so it brings up very strong negative feelings in the throat, the chest, and the belly. The first thing is we acknowledge that we're being criticized, say yes to the situation, distract ourselves from the words for a moment, and pull ourselves into a, something else that's more skillful, then focus quickly on the body and find where the strongest feelings are present and first relax around them. So if they're in the belly or the, the chest, relax the legs, the buttocks, the shoulders, the face, the back of the neck. Lastly, and there we're going to meditate, uh, there's a wonderful practice that I uh, picked up from uh, uh, the years of <laughs> Buddhist circles. It's called the movie theater practice. I'm going to share it with you. It's only useful for when you're not actually in the dreaded experience, but when you know the dreaded experience is going to happen and you're trying to figure out a way to go through a conversation that you've been avoided, a conflict that you don't want to happen, but you know you have to walk through it, something that you know is going to happen, and you finally reach the point of acceptance. So what do we do? There's a very simple practice. You visualize as accurately as you can the dreaded experience in your mind, but put it in a movie projector image that's being projected in a movie theater and pretend that you're in the seat in the movie theater watching this movie. So you're no longer there in the scene you dread. You're actually in a seat in a movie theater watching the, a cinematic documentary about the experience. And then continually look around, break from the screen, relax yourself, and then look back at the image. What you're doing is you're uncoupling the trigger from the feelings. You're learning to detach the feeling state from the external triggers. This is actually a process that I use very often in counseling, and it actually helps people go through dreaded things like uh, family gatherings. visualize a family gathering, but you're watching it in a movie theater. Oh, there's my family. I'm not actually there. I'm going to relax. What it does is it exposes you to the stimuli, but it decouples the fear or aversion response. In much of life, when we're actually in dreaded experiences, when they're actually occurring, 
really what's only happening is just sight and sound. So it really is like a movie. Most of the time when we're in the dreaded experience of an encounter, nothing's happening to us physically. It's just the image of the person and what they're saying. So this practice actually allows us to essentially decouple so much of the fear that's activated. So that's another strategy. So anyway, we're going to practice all of those right now. So you don't have to memorize them. Just find a comfortable seated position. So closing the eyes, and we'll take three breaths just to start our practice in unison. So take a full in-breath through the nose, and if you'd like, lift your shoulders up to touch your ears. Hold them up there, and then breathe out through the mouth and relax. Perfect. And then let's take another full in-breath and pull in the belly, the abdominal muscles as tight as they can go, contracting the muscle groups holding them in, and then breathe out. Great. Really soften that abdominal area. And then for the third in-breath, let's tighten the muscles in the face. So squinch the muscles around the eyes, the jaw, the forehead. Just squinch all the muscles in the face, ugly pinched face, and then breathe out. So release the jaw, soften the micro-muscles around the eyes, experiencing the eyes as two balls as they were floating in water, and just see if you can settle the eyes so that they're not darting back and forth behind the closed eyelids. So even though our eyes are closed, we can ground ourselves, take a moment to feel the contact with the cushion or the chair. Feel the clothes. If there are any strong sensations in the body, note them. And if you'd like, see if you can breathe into or soften around them.
If you hear the sound of a fan or any sounds from the street, just allow that into awareness. Feel a sense of spaciousness around the body so you can really relax into your space. Feel a sense of space above the head. If there are any random flickering lights behind the closed eyelids, just notice them as well. And then bringing to the foreground of your awareness, if you like, you can use any of those previous sensations as a anchor for your awareness, but if you'd like, bringing into the foreground of your awareness the sensations of your body breathing in and breathing out. You'll feel it in the body as expansion and contraction. Or at the tip of the nose, the movement of air. So if you're using the breath, the practice is very simple. You can simply know when you're breathing in and know when you're breathing out. And that could be done by just at first thinking in and then out. If you have a very strong tendency to drift away, that's okay. It happens to everyone. You could try a counting strategy, thinking one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the next out, and when you reach five on the next in-breath, start counting back down, four on the out, three on the in. So we're counting from one to five and back down. When your mind does wander, and it's not if, it's when, for almost all people, the practice is to be as gentle, compassionate, patient, and accepting there's no room for impatience or criticism. It's all about acceptance and kindness. So just feel good that you've become aware of where the mind is and bring it back. You might add a little note like thinking. Or you might even know what you were thinking about so that you'll be prepared the next time that thought comes up. And it's worth noting, you don't have to push away thoughts. If they're there, but you're still aware of breathing in and breathing out, that's good enough. Just keep the breath or sounds or body sensations in the foreground of your awareness.
So at this point, let's let the breath recede a bit. Keep some awareness on the front of the body, which is where feelings most frequently appear. And then in the area where you see memories, images, visualize fantasies in your mind, conjure up a situation that is associated with dread or foreboding. For some people it might be flying. So there you are. You've agreed against your better judgment to fly and you're in the middle aisle strapped in. The engines are beginning to build before takeoff. Or you're stuck in an elevator, surrounded by people, stuck in a subway that's stalled beneath the East River, strapped in a dentist chair. Or suddenly you've returned home. Or you're having that conversation you've been putting off for years out of dread. That with that one person who you associate with embarrassment, shame, discomfort, or unfairness. So as you visualize the dreaded, just say yes, yes, this is happening, yes. Stop the resistance. No more fighting. Bring your awareness to the present sensations that are with us. The sound of the fan, the ground. So the image is still there, but now you feel yourself seated. You feel yourself in a room, there's an exit, there's a air moving, clothes in the body, a sensory clarity. So there's the triggering experience, the dreaded, but then there's also all these other sensations. And then see if you can find in the body any discomfort where the what the Buddha calls the Dukkha Vedana, the uncomfortable feelings, where are they? And if no feelings are found, change the image again to something that's dreaded or uncomfortable because we really want to begin to work with uncomfortable feelings. So find, using various images, see if you can create that 
dreaded feeling in the body, but we're learning how to hold it now. So if you feel it in your stomach, just drop the shoulders again and again, soften the muscles in the back, relax the muscles in the legs, and just allow the stress to be there. If you want, you can even say yes to the feeling of discomfort, the stress in the body. Say yes, you're allowed. No fighting the stress, no fighting the trigger. It's the practice that leads to acceptance. And then you can breathe slowly through the areas that are activated, breathing from an area just above to an area just below. So if it's in your chest, starting at the throat and going down to beneath the belly and then back up. And you can even whisper into the difficult feelings, I care about you. I'll take care of you. I care about you. I'll take care of you. So many of the things we dread have their roots in early childhood. And so when we are frightened of something, avoidant or trying to escape something, it's because it's scary to a part of ourselves and we just have to inform it that we're there, that we'll take care of ourselves, that we won't let the suffering that happened to us in childhood happen again. If we does get overwhelming, then I can take action, but first I'm going to learn to be with the feelings. Be with the feelings. So lastly, bring up Another dreaded experience, perhaps, with someone, a conversation you don't want to have, something you've been avoiding doing, an encounter that may or may happen, but you secretly wish will never occur. Just visualize it, but now visualize it in detail but put it on a screen in a movie theater and you're just in the seat. And so keep visualizing the image that's dreaded but relax because you're now just in a movie theater and nothing can happen to you. Nothing can happen to you. It's just on a screen. 
seeing in great detail the encounter we want to avoid, but still you're in a movie seat. You're not there relaxing your shoulders, your belly, your legs, your face. So there's nothing to be frightened of. Totally decoupling the experience from the feelings. So when you're ready, let go of the image. Breathe, a full breath in, lifting the shoulders again, tightening the belly, release. And whenever you are ready, slowly as you want, open your eyes, look at the ground in front of you, taking in the light and color, integrating sight back into this embodied awareness.